0: Royal Irish Academy manuscript 23 and 10, what we know, was compiled circa 1575 in North County Roscommon. Its main compiler identifies himself as A, and he was assisted mainly by Duffsuch, as well as in some areas by a scribe who identifies himself as Torna. This group were likely professional scholars working in the company of Sean and in whose school they would have been taught how to write in different scripts and how to choose, copy, and lay out texts of different genres. 23 and 10, as it is now bound, consists of 14 leaves of vellum and 61 of paper and contains 77 texts. We counted them. It was described in detail by Kathleen Mulchrone in 1937 for the Royal Irish Academy Library Catalogue. In 1954, Richard Irvine Best published a colotype facsimile, which was accompanied by an introduction and a detailed list of the manuscript's contents. That's there; it's quite small. The facsimile was based on the negatives of photographs taken by Osborne Bergen in 1915, some five years before the manuscript underwent conservation in the British Library or British Museum. The manuscript was digitised in 2013 and is now available on Irish script on screen. The facsimile remain, remains important however as it retains certain features which are now lost such as the original sewing used to mend a tear in the vellum on page 9 and 10 or where the script or portions of the text still visible in the facsimile is no longer so in in the digitised image, such as is the case with the text of Prull on page 74. The manuscript is revered for it contains copies of some of Ireland's earliest vernacular writing, as we heard earlier on today. Most notably, copies of tales derived from the now lost Cíin dhorma as well as numerous early Irish gnomic tracts, religious poetry, metrical monastic rules, and more. But 23 and 10 also contain smaller texts, that is, texts which often consist of filler material that are of a difficult nature and are so brief as to be considered insignificant, and as such they have been generally ignored by scholarship. Rather than deeming such texts as insignificant. However, I hope to argue in this talk that apart from their linguistic, metrical and literary value, these little texts hold an important function in the manuscript as a whole. It is these texts which best deemed as trifling in his opening comments of the manuscript's facsimile, the quote which I give you in number one of your handout. Under number two in your handout, You'll find a selection of these trifling items, and I give you the descriptions from Mulchrone's catalogue. These consist, for instance, of a later scribal addition, a discussion on the golden number, or the golden rule, and two scribal notes. Mulchrone describes the item in two Roman numeral two as containing a rhetoric, but Best actually doesn't even include this in his description of the contents of the manuscript. Aside from his comment on trifling texts, Best also noted that most of the contents of the book were published, for the most part by Meyer. However, if we closely examine this uh, and what was actually published by 1954, we find that many of the editions that Meyer published did not actually include variant readings from copies preserved in 23 and 10. And when they were published, they were not always accompanied by translations. And I give you some examples in the second section under number two of your handout. The obvious elephant in the room, I think, is Toghverk Evere, uh, one of three extant copies, which still awaits to be published in full. Its importance was noted by Gregory Toner, who observed that N often contains the older reading against the modernized reading in Levernahedra. Another example is the prophecy ascribed to Beg MacDay. Which Meyer published from two manuscripts, barring that found in twenty three and ten, and again without translation. The short old Irish poem at Verum Free Fliesania was printed by Meyer from two manuscripts, uh, but the copy in N was ignored, even though it has superior readings in some instances. So, although numerous texts have of course received critical editions and translations since 1954, much work still remains to be done. So, 23 and 10 might be termed a medieval manuscript miscellany on account of its range in contents and textual arrangement. But the concept of a manuscript miscellany can be problematic as it may convey the notion of a codex that contains texts randomly organized in a chaotic fashion and with an absence of order. However, there can often be an underlying internal logic running throughout the manuscript that was apparent to the compiler. But even within codices which were created by a guiding intelligence, we find miscellaneous texts or sequences of miscellaneous texts. Such texts often serve as space or line fillers, occupying leftover space at the end of a column, a choir or a booklet, so as not to leave expensive vellum blank. By their very nature, such filler material tends to be short so that it is of suitable length to fill in the blank space and can be deliberately chosen from another source for this specific purpose. The term filler does not need to imply that they are of of secondary importance. Although they are used to fill space, they have often been deliberately selected for their content as shown by Arthur Barr's examination of manuscripts from other manuscript cultures. The internal logic of a codex may not always be discernible to modern scholars especially when they encounter a manuscript in which the original structure has been disturbed, as is the case with 23 and 10. So in order to determine what the filler texts are and what function they hold within the manuscript as a whole, we must first turn to the physical arrangement of 23 and 10. The manuscript as it is presently bound has the vellum leaves to the front and the paper uh, leaves following thereafter with portions of texts misplaced across the manuscript. given uh, And I'll give you these on number uh, three of your handout. It's important to note that the pagination is modern and there is no original numbering system. There are different theories among scholars as to the disordering. In 1905, John Stran wrote that the codex was copied page for page from an older manuscript in which two leaves had become displaced. And I give you these (coughs) references, I think, in number four of your handout. Kathleen Mulcrone followed Strand, noting that the frequent misplacements of leaves in the manuscript suggests that it appears to be a line-for-line replica of an older vellum. She also posited the possibility that a paper replica was made of the vellum initially, written by A, portions only of both now remain, Best tells us, and I quote, the leaves are now all detached from their conjugates so that it is not possible to determine gatherings, end quote. He also toys with the idea that possibly a former owner placed the vellum leaves at the beginning of the volume and the paper at the end, but ultimately he follows Strand's thinking uh, that 23 and 10 is a replica of another manuscript in which the leaves uh, were already found out of order. More recently, Joan Corthels and Kevin Murray suggested that the manuscript consisted of vellum leaves intermingled with paper leaves, with the misbinding being due to a later possessor who desired to place all the vellum together and all the paper together. Indeed, the current order was likely imposed when the Academy uh, had the manuscript interleaved and rebound in the 1850s, having purchased it as part of um, William Batham's collection, and we'll hear more from Richard Sharp on that later. But what then was the original order of the manuscript, and can we reconstruct it? Well, yes, up to a certain point. Contrary to Best's assertion, I have found that at least four of the vellum leaves are still in their respective conjugates, and in number five of your handout, uh, I've given you the conjugates. And please note, I use the modern pagination uh, numbering system throughout this discussion. So, in number five of your handout, you'll see that one, two, that is recto, verso, respectively, and three, four are conjugate. Five, six, and seven and eight are conjugate. Thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen are conjugate. And seventeen, eighteen, and nineteen, twenty are conjugate. What now? Uh, On page 9 and 10, pages which are on display, uh, thankfully, uh, to Sophie, um, we find a hole in the vellum with a tear extending towards the bottom of the page, as well as a tear extending out of the top. The lower tear must be original because accommodates the text on page eight, so the rective side of page nine to suit not only the tear but also the stitching he uses to mend it, uh, which has now been replaced with new stitching uh, in the nineteen twenties. The tear then extends over onto page eleven. This tear could only spread over onto page eleven if both belonged to one bifolium. Thus nine, ten and eleven and twelve are one conjugate. Although 21, 22, and 23, 24 are no longer attached, they likely too uh, were part of the same bifolium because they share the same perking pattern and hair flesh sides respectively. And possibly 25, 26, and 27, 28, now singletons, but also sharing hair flesh sides, were also attached. Having identified these conjugates, we can now reassemble some of the gatherings of the manuscript, of which there are three with a partial fourth, although I suspect that there was an amount of leaves uh, lost when it was rebound in the 1850s. The sequencing of texts could be determined by texts running across, uh, continuing across pages uh, from recto to verso, uh, verso back over on as well as with the aid of the same textual arrangement of a series of texts found in another manuscript, and I'll come to that in a moment. So in what follows, I have provided you with diagrams each of each gathering with the running order of the texts with the modern pagination given below so that you can refer back and forward to the two, and the bold lines in the diagrams represent vellum and the thinner lines represent paper, and uh, this comes with a health warning, do not do this at home, Uh, you'll end up with an eye twitch, uh, like I did. Uh, So the first gathering starts with Teguska Cormac, beginning at the top of page one, continuing to the bottom of page two. Here there is a chasm with the loss of leaves, possibly paper, Evidenced by a substantial lacuna in the text. The text, however, continues over uh, again on page three to the bottom of page four. Gathering two, moving down to your second diagram, consists of one outer bifolium that is five, six, so recto and verso, seven, eight, recto and verso. Carrying on, from uh, Gathering 1 we find the text of Teguska Cormac uh, continuing on 5 down to line 22. Here Brithra Flan begins, continuing over to page 6, line 18. Then Shen Brithra Fiesel uh, begins on line 19 to the bottom or the end of the page. At this point we encounter the first paper leaf with its modern pagination of page 77. Although found further on in the manuscript as it is now bound, this page should be placed here in this sequence. On the verso, so page 78, the poem Laudate Dominum de Celis uh, begins. This is followed by a group of metrical monastic rules which run concurrently across the paper leaves until the end of page 88 with the final verses of Riegel and Quimded located on the recto of the inserted uh, inner vellum bifolium, that is page 17. Continuing on from here, across the vellum conjugate to the bottom of page 20 are a series of religious poems uh, which I list and you will find in running order below the diagram. So at this point, it gets a little bit trickier, since there's nothing to connect any text with the end of 20. However, we can work our way backwards, uh, from the back of the gathering, and work forward. On 78, at the end of the gathering, we find the text of the triads, which is preceded by paper leaf 99-100. Also, the triads, and with the beginning of the triads found on 98. 98 is the verso of 97. Texts run concurrently from 97 back to 93, recto. For the sequence of texts on 89 and 90, 91 and 92, following on from 20, so why did I put them in there? How was I able to establish that? We are helped by the similar similar textual arrangement of a group of texts found in Míhál O'Clerig's uh, Royal Irish Academy Stowe, B42 manuscript, and I list these in the box at the bottom of uh, page three in your handout. The sequence of texts beginning with the poem of invocation to Mary and ending with robot Maloch uh, vec mode precisely match those I applyed in the box in the running order. These are independent copies, not derived from men, and O'Cleric tells us that he copied from a manuscript owned or written by Mwilachlan Macfiesel, the brother of Flathri o Archbishop of Tum. The triads continue then over onto the third gathering, so over on page four they're handed, which again, as you can see, consists of an outer vellum bifolium. The triads conclude on a paper insert uh, page 101, and it is likely that there should be another five leaves here. The text of Tuchferk Evra begins on the vellum insert, continuing across six leaves of paper and again to the outer bifolium. The text continues then on to the fourth gathering, which begins with 2526. Tuchferk Gevra continues across two further paper leaves from page 125, Concluding at the bottom of one hundred and twenty-eight. Again, here we find a gap before the vellum bifolium insert of thirteen fourteen and fifteen sixteen, as is the practice in gathering two and three. twenty seven twenty eight then marks the end of the gathering uh, with the page with page twenty eight left blank. How many paper leaves were placed in this gathering, or what texts should have been here? I have no idea and no way of telling. There are also numerous leaves of paper remaining for which there is no relevant gathering. Uh, And I list these in their respective groupings um, in number seven of your handout. It may be that more vellum bifolia were lost into which they originally fit. So from the reconstructed gatherings, if you don't think I'm mad, uh, we can establish that the texts were grouped, uh, beginning with gnomic texts, followed by metrical monastic rules, religious poetry, a group of prophecies, contemplative religious poems, which we heard about yesterday, uh, tract on the canonical errors, concluding with the triads before moving on to narrative prose. The scribes do not always display a concern for filling the text frame, with blank spaces left in ten instances that I have counted, with two of these being entire pages left blank, such as this one, marking the end of the gathering or the end of a group text, In some instances, a text may begin at the bottom of a page if it belongs into a thematically arranged cluster. But there are also instances where the empty space at the bottom of the page was filled with miscellaneous texts. And I'll give you uh, the locations of these in number eight of the handout. So for instance, The scribes would often sneak in one-sentence notes here and there to fill up the line at the end of a page where a quatrain has finished halfway through the line uh, and a new quatrain starts at the beginning of the next page. Other spaces, as we shall see, are occupied by brief poems which are not immediately apparent uh, to the reader or as to why they were even chosen, uh, instances where possibly marginal material may have been incorporated, uh, or film material that was compiled or anthologised in an exemplar and subsequently transmitted in a cluster in 23 and 10. So the first example is found on the lower half of page 101, and it is a topographical poem, number nine, I think in your handout. It occupies 17 lines of the page with the following page left blank Uh, and at the top of the page we find the final portion of the triads, Uh, a text copied entirely by Dufzach. Having concluded the triads, Dufzach pens a, a colophon, seeking a blessing upon A, noting that he was writing in 1575 at balia feverd Erblaw mwege in the company of Sean and Mwil-Chunara, and he states that he chose to copy the triads on account of its reliable knowledge, or their verish, as uh, Bernadette Cunningham pointed out in her her write-up book, uh, the manuscript. A takes up the pen, then, using a slightly lighter brown ink, and he thanks Dufthoch goor A leaves the space of one line, whereupon, whereupon then he copies uh, the poem, which is on the five monsters. So according to its editor, Lloyd, the language is decidedly Middle-Irish. It consists of seven verses, written in Raniath War, uh, or more specifically, Raniath Deiltoch. We find acol rhyme and internal rhyme in the second couplets. The poem discusses the five areas of Munster, and of the seven verses, uh, notably two laud the area of Munster. The poem seems unrelated to any other text in the manuscript, uh, maybe I'm missing something, uh, so they possibly A chose it then for its intrinsic interest. Perhaps in the acknowledgement of the branch of the di Conra, based in Thomond, uh, in the Thomond area in Munster, in the, fifth, in the 16th centuries. This may also explain his reference to in a colophon on page 77, where A laments at the departure of James Fitzmaurice and his family to Rome in 1575, were members of the 16th century ruling, uh, who were members of the ruling Geraldine dynasty in Munster. So moving on to item number 10 in your handout, at the bottom of page 56 we find a poem with the inscription of the Twelve Apostles, and it is written in Dev the Meter. I know of two other copies, the first found in the Trinity College Dublin manuscript E 4.2, which preserves only the first verse. The second is found in the late 15th century UCD Franciscan manuscript A7, where it is inserted as a commentary to the Thaler at Oingoso and contains both verses. This was edited by Whitley Stokes in his edition of the Fader. Kuno Meyer printed the copy in 23 and 10, but he did not include the final line Ebskup, at the end of the second verse, uh, which lists 13 bishops of Ireland uh, to equate them to the 12 apostles. Um, at first glance, these verses appear unanchored in their immediate textual surrounding. The poem is preceded by prose text concerning the King Oid Ordnade, and followed by the King Dromish texts, although we cannot, of course, be certain of this order since the pages have been taken out of their original gathering, as discussed earlier. However, if we zoom out, the verse-to-verse concerning the Apostles is found to be related with the Middle Irish poem on the spread of idol worship, copied by A on page 90, which, as I have shown, was actually originally placed earlier in the manuscript. In that poem, 12 stanzas enumerate the 12 apostles, as Lizzie Boyle uh, discussed yesterday. According to Mulcrone and Best, the poem on page 56 was copied by A. And while I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of examining the hands throughout the whole manuscript at present, it is sufficient to note that the use of the distinctive single-headed and vertical kjorn for ether is indicative of uh, Duftok's hand, not A, who usually employs a three-headed kjorn for ether. It could be conceivable, therefore, that Dofthoch, aware of A's inclusion of the poem on idolatry, included the quatrains here as an echo referring back to this poem. Another comparable example of a filler poem chosen deliberately for its subject matter is found in the poem of three quatrains, which extols the measurements and contents of Oingus Macanough's house, references for which I give you in number 14. Kuno Meyer uh, printed the copy from the early 16th century British Library manuscript, Harley in 5280, with variants from Stowe B42 only and no translation. These are independent copies, and in each manuscript, the poem occupies the bottom of the text frame on the page. In 23 and 10 it disrupts the sequence of Keynes or uh, Schnechte texts, however. And since it doesn't seem to be immediately uh, thematically connected with its textual surrounding, it could be presumed to be a miscellaneous addition to fill out the end of the text frame. However, the poem may serve to connect the kiendroma group of texts, um, uh, such as the one in which uh, it is inferred that Mongon Macphiaithne is Finn McCool with the few Fenian tales in the manuscript, namely the dialogue between Finn and Oisín, which uh, David talked about earlier, and Uath Benna Aether, where at the end of the tale, Oingus comes to serve, save Dermid from his predicament with Finn. So at the beginning of, talk, of the talk, under 2.2, I referred to a scribal note, which Mulcrone described as containing a rhetoric. Since it hasn't been published yet, I give you the text in item number 12. Upon examination, however, we find that it's not actually a rhetoric, but rather a Middle Irish verse written in Raniaith Beg, with each stressed word in line C rhyming with its counterpart in line D, as well as alliteration in each line. It's located at the bottom of page 20, as you can see, Slide, if you blink, you might miss it. It's not afforded a flourished initial F, as is the case with the preceding poem, Minoron in Maraglan, which begins with an ornate capital M. Considering that it appears at the bottom of the page, with a new poem beginning on page 21, this is every appearance of being a filler. Filling out the last four lines of the Vellum page, and we know that there has been no loss of leaves here, given the earlier reconstruction. However, in comparison to the gap fillers already discussed, where the poems are afforded with an initial uh, enlarged capital letter, this is not the case uh, here, and thus the poem is not given any, or the text is not given any authority on the page. So I mentioned the poem in uh, on in Araglan, copies of which uh, several copies of which are extant, uh, and they've published, been published and printed and uh, translated uh, widely uh, widely in modern anthologies of Irish poetry. Uh, none of the other manuscript copies uh, are followed by this item uh, at the bottom of page 20. However, I'd like to draw your attention to the copy of Moyneron in Maraglan, preserved in Stowe B42, which I referred to earlier, as containing a series of texts found in similar arrangement to 23 and 10. In B42, the poem concerning Kirkron and Moyle Susson does not follow Moyneron in Maraglan. And if you, uh, the text of this is given, I think I give it a number 13. So this is B42, uh, you can find it, uh, the text in the, in, that I'm talking about, in the middle of the page. Instead of uh, the verse number 11, we find a different Middle Irish quatrain, which has not yet been published, and therefore I give it to you in your handout, in number 13. It is written in Dachnid Comysch and uh, concerns winter kirkron, who are more desirous for a sip of milk than anyone else. Notably, Miholo O'Cleric contrives a dounid, thereby incorporating the sentence and quatrain into minorong in maraglon, a point which has not been previously noted in modern editions of the poem. In 23 and 10, however, we find this uh, the verse which was incorporated into the poem in b 42 2 found in the centre of a page, Uh, page 91 in 23 and 10, uh, where it is placed after the poem Evil O Hargoodsov, and it is forwarded a capital flourished letter. I'm still not entirely sure how to reconcile the positioning of these quatrains in their differing locations in both manuscripts, but it seems to me that they must have been located closely enough together in the exemplar from which A and Michal O'Clerig Or indeed, Moylachlan MacFethel were copying from, and that in the process of transmission, these quatrains migrated into their current uh, positions. So, moving on to page uh, item number 14 now. Uh, On page 55, no, that's spoiled the fun. Uh, On page 55, we find a cluster of three poems namely, the poem containing Adveram Friv, Leith Sanya. Concerning the proper food to be eaten on Bielsena, Lunasud, Sawan, and Imbolg, which I mentioned at the beginning of the talk. It is followed by Frise or Kamamus, which compares the qualities of the characteristics of the provinces of Ireland with foreign people. And lastly, the poem Adius, Duyv, and Fear, concerning the true nature of tears. These are based on preliminary examination of the language datable to the old Irish period, and they all await full of critical editions with not all manuscript copies in print yet. Independent copies of these poems also survive in other manuscripts, which I list in your handout, and all instances are found as filler material, occupying the bottom of a text frame or a column. So for example, in Rollinson B512, uh, 512's copy of Ad Verum Friv we find it occupying the final nine lines of column B. In the book of Ivanya, uh, Friv the Kech da Kumamus occupies the final four lines of the column, written later in darker ink, according to the cataloger, and added by the same hand, however, as that of the rest of the folio. Rather than beginning the metrical dinhennichus at the bottom of the folio here, the scribe begins it over at the top of the following folio and uses a filler uh, to cover the expensive vellum. We find another copy in uh, Laud Miscellany 610 where it is also a filler, whereas in the uh, National Library of Ireland G1 copy, the manuscript is so small, measuring but six by five centimetres, that the poem is the only text on the page. Copies of these three poems also survive in Harley 5280, uh, an early 16th century manuscript as I mentioned. The poems here all survive on one page, filling out the remaining space of column B. In fact, they also appear in the same arrangement in 23 and 10, page 55. So the, I haven't highlighted that, but it's kind of after the first four lines. N's cluster of poems are not copied from the Harleian manuscript on account of uh, several superior readings in N against Harleian, but rather they were copying from a shared exemplar. Moreover, in light of the copies preserved as fillers of these poems in other manuscripts, it suggests that the compiler of this shared exemplar brought together or anthologised poems that served as fillers. Following on from the three poems, we find, uh, and filling out the rest of page 55, we find two texts, namely Tufford Boysche and Thoin Bo which are item number 15, Roman numeral uh, 1 and 2, respectively, in your handout. Neither of these titles are mentioned in medieval Irish tale lists. Copies of Tóchfrík Bóise and Tóin Ruinus are found in the early 16th century uh, manuscript, TCD manuscript, page 318, uh, page 60, where they're separated from each other by the short text Risen Sian, Úa Copies of both texts are also found, again, in Harley 5280. Surprise! Um, these copies are all independent from one another, but N and Harleyan are closely related. And in both manuscripts, the texts are found as clusters at the bottom of their respective pages. So, consisting of brief pr- prose introductions followed by Rusk passages, both texts are not without their difficulties containing both rare vocabulary and strange spellings. Kuno Meyer published the text of Tocferkwisha, preserved in TCD manuscript H318, with variants from the Harleyan copy, but not of N, and without translation. In the case of Toynbo Ruined, Meyer printed the copies again from H318 and Harleyan, but not from N. What was it with N? <laughs> it's it. Um, more recently, Catherine Highland has published a translation based on Meyer's edition, but apart from this, these two texts have remained ignored. Thus, critical editions of both texts will be included in the printed version of this talk. In the meantime, however, by way of a small contribution to today's conference, as well as to illustrate how filler material can often prove difficult to interpret, I provide you here with my own normalised text based on all three manuscript copies of Tochfer Fuisia, accompanied by my own inadequate and tentative translation, as Cecile Rathli would describe her own translations of Rusk passages in the Toyn Bokulna. In the opening prose sentences, the circumstance of the courting of Fuisia is laid out, followed by a non-rhyming alliterative Rusk passage, I've divided the lines here according to the internal alliteration. So we find regular internal alliteration between the penultimate and final word within each line without any linking alliteration. There are two, two stressed elements per line, with lines ending either in a trisyllable or a disyllable with no regular syllabic count. And the passage ends with a duned. It is possible that A included both texts because they fit into the larger construct of narratives in the manuscript as a whole, rather than just uh, their immediate surroundings where they would be considered as miscellaneous. Thus we find, uh, as we find Tochford Gebra, the wooing tale of, uh, of Imer, uh, Tochford Buisha is a text concerning the courting of boy uh, Buish, an otherworldly female wizard, by Fachtna Fohok. Toinbo Ruinid concerns the attack of Ruinid on a cattle herd, and apart from the reference to the Toinbo Cunia in Verba Scotica, Toinbo Ruinid is actually the only Toin text in 23 and 10. Moreover, their inclusion may not seem so unusual when we consider the significant number of texts in the manuscript that also contain poetry of non-rhyming variety, such as an Egeddatherna. Which consists of narrative prose and rusk passages, as well as the numerous others embedded in the narrative tales, uh, and so on. So now to some conclusions. We can all relax. Having examined, I actually need to, drink water for a to Having examined the original physical structure and arrangement of twenty-three and ten, I hope to have shown that the manuscript was not a replica but an independently produced manuscript. It is clear that this manuscript was compiled with high deliberation of organisation, with A and Dovthoch choosing and laying out its contents in a systematic and careful way. A high level of thought is also reflected in the making of the physical book, with its combined stratum of vellum and paper, and with each gathering consisting of outer and inner Vellum bifolia, possibly acting as a safeguard for the paper insertions. An examination of the inclusion of otherwise seemingly miscellaneous filler material used by A. and indeed Dovsuch reveals not only an aesthetic concern with filling lines, but that they also selected poetry which were thematically relevant and which helped to interlink the sections, the separate sections of the book together. Moreover, such material also reveals that there was a process of accumulation of filler texts in the manuscript tradition, drawing on the vibrant heritage of learning preserved in manuscripts of the 15th and 16th century. Therefore, rather than deeming filler material as insignificant or trifling, as Richard Irvine Best did, a better approach going forward is to examine the compiler's motivation for their inclusion as influenced by the larger codicological structures in which they appear. By investigating such trifling texts as those found in 23 and 10, scholars can productively restore to critical viewed texts that might otherwise be ignored and ultimately end up lost. Thank you.